the enemy, uh, he, uh, he preys upon our fear and weakness. And man's greatest fear and his greatest weakness is that of death. We're afraid to die and so we want to soak up all we can in life and we want to be free and do whatever we want. He, he preys upon us and he, and he lies upon that fear. But what hold does he have? What foothold does he have in your life if you're no longer afraid to die? What then can he do to us if for me to die is gain? It only gets better, folks. You, listen to me, you have nothing to fear. You've heard it a thousand times before. This sermon, you've probably heard or, or, or understand, could preach it yourself. But you may need to hear this in your spirit again. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of because the old man is gone. And a new thing has come and you will never be the same again. You are heavenly creatures. And for that reason, we can pray today. Lord, we just thank you for that truth. We thank you for your word, that it's, it's just freeing, Lord. It's so helpful. We don't have anything to be afraid of. To die is gain. To be absent with the body is to be present with you, Lord. And oh, how we desire to be present with you in a greater state than we are here and now with you in the room. Lord, we thank you that we'll, we'll never be the same again. We pray that you use us, us fearless people, us warriors for you, to help free others from the same fear. We thank you for this time that you've given us. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Everyone said, amen and amen. Well, it's kind of a bummer when you... Alex, can I? Yeah. Is this... Uh, just y'all talk amongst yourselves. I'm working here. Yeah, I like this. <clears throat> when the pastor leads worship, it's tough because sometimes the song preaches it better than we could just go home. <laughs> because uh, really, uh, I, I couldn't parallel better the sermon that we're about to, to go through because of the scripture that we have fallen upon in this time and the song that was just sung. And so uh, I'm throwing an audible in right now in my own heart. I'm asking the Lord to help me find a way to put what we just sang in what I'm about to speak because uh, it really uh, brought some clarity even to me in the back of the room while we were, while we were worshiping uh, today. Uh, so we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, like I said before, I was on vacation. We had a great time. We went to Steamboat, and we uh, uh, didn't. We're getting ready, like I said, for the baby, and so we did a lot of nursery planning. And uh, the baby is due on September fifth. I was telling a lot of people we were preparing uh, the nursery over the break, and, and I, I've been wanting to kind of refurbish all the furniture for the baby, do everything I can to uh, actually build the nursery. And I'm not a carpenter yet. I'm an aspiring one. Uh, my dad calls it a hack. I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm not very good, but I try. And I was uh, sanding or painting something and, and, and sanding a part of the, of the dresser. And I was considering, I just had my headphones in, I was listening to a song, and I was in my garage, and I'm sanding away, kind of on my vacation, and, and just hanging out, and I started to think for the first time, like, you know, September 5th isn't a hard and fast date. For those of you that don't have kids, like, this is a big phenomenal <laughs> understanding that I had to come uh, to grips with. Like, it could come later. September 10th, 9, 10, that'd be a cool birthday. September 11th, maybe redeem that day, that'd be awesome. And then I started to think, it could come, like, earlier. <laughs> I think, man, September 2nd, September 3rd, man, I gotta... And then I th the, the concept, like, started to really boil in my head. This baby could come in August. This baby could come in July. <laughs> and so as I, as I snapped kind of back to reality, and I was uh, looking back at what I was doing, I was like frantically sanding, like, oh man, we got to get all this stuff done. <laughs> and so uh, uh, each week I'm, on, I'm up here because I'll be preaching for the, for the month of July. I'll give a little snippet about, about my uh, vacation because I, I think it's important to, to share with each other. I also want to meet with you guys and hear how your uh, June has been as well. 
Today we're going to talk about slaves and masters, a sermon on the Christian's freedom and independence. Uh, this essentially will be a two-part message. Uh, part one will be this week and, and next week as we push into Romans 21, uh, six, chapter 6, verse 21, we'll, we'll continue on the very same theme. 241 years ago, on July 2nd, our founders decided to declare their independence from Great Britain. Uh, they worked up a document on the 2nd of July, and by the 4th, they had all signed it and sent it away. It was a declaration of war. We call it the Declaration of Independence. And uh, John Adams, uh, former president, second president, and uh, one of the framers of our country, uh, had this to say, and I thought it was really, really good for, for this time of year. He wrote to his wife on the 2nd of July, or on the 3rd, uh, uh, what had happened in, amongst these 13 colonies and representatives in framing this country. And he said this, On the 2nd of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be sodomized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward and my favorite part forevermore. I was like just studying, you know, doing some reading over the thing. I like history and I was like fist pumping in the middle of Starbucks like, man, that, America, that's what I'm talking. That is what I am talking about. We celebrate this time of our independence as we should. However, I've seen, especially in the Western church in recent history, there seems to be a mixing of our conceptualization or understanding of the freedom and liberty we impart on in America and what that freedom means and the freedom that we experience in Christ. And we've kind of merged the two together. The freedom in America and the freedom in Christianity kind of are like, well, what's the difference? Freedom is freedom is freedom. I'm coming here to tell you today that biblically speaking, my heart, um, my truest desire is for you to know the word. Not, not for you to be listeners of somebody who can tell you about it. But for you personally to be knowers of the word. For you who has the spirit in you to divide it yourself. To have a personal relationship with the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And to study the word so that you for yourself can think independently. That you may someday have something better to say to a generation than any preacher alive. And my heart is that way. Uh, my, my, my intention, because my heart is that way, my intention today is not only to deliver a sermon, but to help you become critical thinkers of the word. So that those of you that are thinkers, I'm a thinker, can become believers. The word will do that. And those of you that are just the blind believers, you can become thinkers. It was a thinking like this that I believe the founders had. They were willing to be independent. Do you know that, that what they did was treason? Greatest country in the world was founded by breaking the law. <laughs> Isn't that right? 13 colonies, hassled up. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make here today is that if we look biblically for ourselves, we would find that maybe the liberty we experience in America is a good thing, but it is not the same thing as the freedom we have in Christ. And I want to do the next two weeks uh, the best I can to uh, delivering what those differences are. I wrote this, uh, <clears throat> we have mixed our idea of American freedom with the freedom of the Christian life. Could it be so that they are not as relatable as we think? Let's jump in uh, to uh, the text here, but before I want to do a little bit of a, a recap, let's go to the next slide here. The book of Romans, if you haven't been with us, is essentially an essay written by Paul to the church at Rome. 
Um, to make a long story short, Paul is trying to uh, explain to this church what exactly he believes in. We believe Paul to have the accurate picture and depiction of faith in Christ. And so essentially, he writes an essay drawing out what Christianity is. He establishes it in the first and second chapter of the book of Romans, calling it this, my gospel. He was saying to them essentially like, you are questioning or have an idea about what Christianity is. I will tell you what my gospel says and you can compare it to your own. And what he found, what he intends for them to find is that, uh, that his is more severe and right than theirs. Uh, in brief, he essentially has a three-part process of regeneration that he talks about from chapter 1 to chapter 8. And this is important. If you have a pen, you should write this down. This is a teachable moment here. The three parts of our regeneration in Christ Jesus are this. The first is justification by faith. The second is sanctification over time. And the third is ultimate glorification. In chapters 5 or 4 and 5, and even into the beginning parts of 6, Paul talks to the Roman church about justification. In chapter 5, he uses this Greek term, eros tense, meaning this. Our justification happened once forevermore. You need to hear me. You are not continually being justified. Meaning like, I'm, I was less justified yesterday and I'll be more justified tomorrow. You are as justified as you will ever be. Meaning acquitted. You are, you're free to go. In the, in, the, in, the, in the court eyes of the law, of the justice of God, you are free. You're justified forevermore. Well, how do you get that? By faith. In who? In what Jesus did. As a propitiation for the punishment you deserved. You're as justified today as you're ever going to get. Does that make sense? But because we're justified and our sin has been acquitted because it was put up on the cross, we died with Christ, doesn't mean that we are sanctified. These are two separate issues. Ultimately, in the end, ultimate glorification, meaning when I leave this physical body, I am glorified in what's, what's, what's called the... Uh, um, Revelation, sorry, it's a book that I teach on Wednesday nights. You should come. In the book of Revelation, when the Lord returns, we are resurrected in a new body. The Bible says we're ultimately glorified in the end. We're given a new, we're resurrected up with him again. The Lord isn't rising again. He rose once and for all, but he brings us after, let's say we're not around for the rapture of the end times. If we were to you know, pass away on the way here, you are ultimately glorified with him in his presence forevermore. Okay, so regeneration is a long process. It's immediate in one sense. You are justified if you believe in Jesus and that what he did for you, he did for real, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead on the, on the third day, that you believe by faith, you are justified, and heaven is yours. It's by faith, not by your works, not by what we can do. We are sanctified over time, and ultimately, because of him, we are uh, glorified forevermore. Amen. This is the three-part process that Paul is taking us through, and today in chapter 6, also what Alex has been taking us through the last few weeks, we are going to be discussing a part of sanctification. So I want to be clear, when we're discussing things today, we're not talking about justification, we're not talking about ultimate salvation, we're not talking about glorification, we are talking about the sanctifying work of Christ in our life today over time. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, it's as fast as I can uh, recap. Let's go ahead and read the scriptures and uh, find out what he's talking about, Paul, in regards to sanctification. This is in chapter 6, verse 15 through 20. If you don't have your Bibles, you can uh, look up on the screen here. We encourage you to bring one. If you don't have one, let us know. We'll get you one. Because... Uh, don't listen to me, listen to it. That's all I have to say. Verse 15. What then, Paul says, <clears throat> shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves for the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. Resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We am go to the next slide here. To be honest, I've been following along um, the last few weeks and, and trying to exegete the scripture along with Alex and just study, because I really feel like uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Romans are some of the most foundational and important in the scripture for our understanding of the Christian life. And uh, the greatest challenge in those chapters I have come across is this passage of Scripture. It is difficult. It is rich. It is good. But it is difficult. And so before I go line by line and verse by verse to see what the Word would have to say for us today, I want to take a moment to talk about a word that we just read in the Scripture. I call this the dither with doulos. Everybody say doulos. Doulos is an important word in Scripture. It's used over 130 times in the New Testament. And I consider myself very much a novice in the Greek language, but I'm getting better day by day, and I have been studying this word uh, for quite some time because it can trip people up. The trouble with doulos is not that it's, it's rare. Sometimes we have trouble translating words because it's not around. Like I said, it's been used 130 times. There's ample information for what doulos means. In the original language, doulos is translated very simple and very clear. It is this, slave. Dulos means slave. However, in the 130 times in this tense of scripture, um, there's like verbs and, and all this other stuff, but in this tense, it's, over, it's used over 160 times altogether. Dulos is found in Greek. You will find the English word slave only once in the King James Version. when talking about the relationship to Christ. However, in the other times that, that, that doulos is used, let's consider portions in Scripture where they're just talking about literal slaves. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. If you've lost a slave, and in Philemon, Paul says, man, tell this slave to come back. The word is doulos. They're talking about slaves. But when we're talking about our relationship to Christ, it's, it's like the translators don't want to use the word slave. So they translate it to something just slightly different. Servant. Or bond servant. I don't mean to be finicky here, and I know that some of you may take issue with this, and that's okay. We can go through the study together. To change a word, maybe because it's more palatable, I don't know, in uh, King James Version, it's, what is that, 1611, was published. It was way before the Civil War and American slavery and anything like that. Why this word was so hard to, to receive, but they changed it. You know that there are six other words for the word servant, and none of them are doulos? But every time the word doulos is in reference to us being in relationship with Christ, we call it a servant because it seems to be less than. The problem with calling something a servant when it's a slave is a servant is not a slave. Servanthood is a part of what a slave does. You see, a servant very clearly in that text, in that time, was paid and could come and go. They could quit. If you're a servant, you can go. If you're a slave, you are owned. This is important for us today to understand, and you need to get this concept really clear, because our relationship to Christ is a child of God, is a, a member of his family. We are adopted. Those things are good. But that has been so heavily preached over the years that we've, we've, we've got this picture, I believe, in our head, especially in my generation, that because I'm a Christian, God wants to just grant every wish that I have. He wants to do everything for me. I'm just meant for success. It's all going to be good because, because, because I'm God's son. True. 
But there's martyrs in our history. There's trial in our future. Because we are slaves when we consider ourselves kings and princesses and, and ones who should be glorified. That is all true. But we put ourselves in the center of the stage. We become the important character. And the truth about your relationship with Christ in Jesus is that you are in fact not the center character. He is. Amen. Because we are a slave. And he is the master. And it is our pleasure to serve him. It is our desire to give of our life. The concept of slavery wasn't all bad like the way we think of American slavery, which is not biblical and is a travesty. Slavery in the day, if you were a good master, I could come to you and say, I will give myself to you as a slave. And it was a mutually benefit of ex ex exchange. For the master, he got a slave that would be with him for the rest of his life. It would serve him, not as a servant, but as a slave. But for the slave, he and his family would be in covering. To have a slave was an investment. You didn't starve a slave. If you were a good master, you cared for the slave. Abraham takes his greatest servant, his slave, and puts him, entrusts him to find a daughter for his only son. I don't want us to think about whippings and beatings. Now, those things were true. If you were disobedient as a slave, you were punished because you made a commitment. You broke the law in exchange, and this is what the scripture is going to talk about. But we need to understand the best explanation of the Christian life is that of a slave. Now, there's a term in the Greek language called bond servant or bond slave. It's, it's kemo doulos, bond slave. Bond slaves mean I'm willing. I go to you and say, hey, I have a proposition for you. I will be your slave like my little sister when we would want the remote control. Give me the remote control. I'll be your slave for a week. <laughs> we would be willing to step forward and take that. Paul says in his explanations in the beginning of Scripture, I, Paul, a bond servant, poor translation. It is saying, I, Paul, a willing slave. There's a Scripture in Matthew 25, and you guys probably know it now. The, the Lord says, well done, my good and faithful. Bad translation. Doulos. He is saying to you, well done, my good and faithful property. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians that you were bought with a price. You don't buy servants. You pay them. We have to understand that the concept of Christianity today is that we are owned. We are in a covering. And in exchange uh, for that, we get what the Lord, the good master, wants to put upon us. Are we clear with that? Just a, a few more concepts here before we jump into the scripture because I think this is, is such an important uh, understanding. A quick question. In any of your versions, does it say servant as opposed to slave in Romans chapter 6? Um, NIV will say it. Raise your hand if you've got servant. I just want to affirm you real quick. Okay, you have servant. Don't believe you have a bad translation. I'm not, I'm not here to say, like, this is all wrong. And well, There's only one author who's translated the Bible that uses doulos as slave every time. His name's Goodspeed. It's an old version of the Bible that Rick taught me about years ago and is the only one that I can find. Uh, nobody translate it per translates it's perfect every time, but I want us to gather the concept for this moment. I'm not here to disaffirm your version of the Bible. That's not my, my intention. Keep your Bible. It's probably really good. Unless it's not, then burn it. Okay. Uh, <coughs> um, just one last quote here. Uh, Ephesians four, or Ephesians six, four through eight. I just want to run through this really quick. To I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here, but this is important for us to move on uh, with any level of effectiveness. Uh, Ephesians six, verses four through eight. Paul is discussing slaves in the proper tense of, of like slaves and masters. But then he moves to the tense of our relationship with Christ. And notice when he gives the example of doulos, slave, he uses the same word for our relationship. Uh, this is one that's commonly translated accurately. Uh, verses four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I just had to get that right. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, but not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do we see that? When you evangelize to somebody, you're inviting them into slavery. 
<laughs> and I don't mean that in any poor context. It is, it is a beautiful exchange uh, uh, to, the, to the best of our understanding. Okay. Paul calls himself a slave. James calls himself a slave. Peter calls himself a slave. David calls himself a slave. The kind of like hall of faith, you know? The people we aspire to be are all understanding this doulos concept, and we would do right by ourselves to do the same. Are we good on that? Have I... Want to go farther? No, just kidding. You, do, you guys are like, please, I'm going to fall asleep. Let's go to the next scripture here and, and see what the Lord has to say, understanding this doulos in chapter 6. Next slide. Uh, the scripture side, chapter, uh, verse 15. Right on. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Verse 15. Paul is talking to the Romans about this justification and sanctification, and he's repeating a question that was in chapter 6, verse 1. If you look in your scripture, you'll see it there. He's saying, what shall we say then? Because grace is around, should we go on sinning? The first time he uses that concept, he's saying that, as uh, Alex referenced, that if we sin, grace abounds all the more. And if our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's our justification. And so you're thinking to myself, well, Christ is glorified by his grace. Why don't I just sin recklessly and then his grace will just abound and he'll be so glorified. He's saying, may it never be because that is not your nature. For you are no longer under the law, but under the grace. The concept of here is, is a, he's, he's bringing a dichotomy between grace and the law. Jewish tradition of the law. You were a slave to the law. In, the, in essence, you were obedient to it. Every man, whether he knew or not, who has ever been born, has been obedient. He's been under the law. Not just the Jews, everyone. Who here has passed the law? No one. Our nature can't, can't achieve the test set out before us. In essence, it's a master who says, I want you to go do this thing. I want you to fly. Well, I can't fly. Well, you're a disobedient slave. And you will be punished. You're in sin, meaning you've missed the mark. And you will be punished as a, as, as, as a result. If you're an obedient slave... You will do whatever is required of you. What, they'll, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? The concept here is that when grace abounds, there now is no law. Meaning we're free from it. We need to remember this. The law doesn't force you to behave. The law points out when you misbehave. Just like fear of death. If there's no longer anything to point out what you misbehave, you can't miss. The target gets endlessly big. Grace abounds all the more. We can't miss the mark. Does that make sense? Does that mean we should just not even try and hit the mark? No. Why? He explains it here. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves on the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. A good slave has perfect obedience. Obedience is not like a sliding scale. Like when my mom would say, how were you at school today? I'd say, pretty good. It's all relative. Like, I went to the principal three times, but I thought I did all right. Better than yesterday. It's not a sliding scale. Obedience is a point. It's a fixed mark. Obedience that Christ asks for is perfection. It's hitting the bullseye every time. A sinful slave is disobedient. And resulting in death. There are levels to sin, like you can be really off and you can be just barely off, but missing the mark is sin altogether, and the punishment is the same. So if you're if you if you're if you're doing the best you can, no matter how hard you work, guess what? You have missed the mark because your very nature can't achieve it. Under the law, you should be submitted to and become a slave to the standards of the law that was set out. And the test that you have embarked upon is obeying every facet of the law. Under grace, by our justification, we are automatically seen as perfectly obedient. You are justified. You are seen as obedient today. Who here believes that Jesus died and rose from the dead? You're a Christian. Let me ask that question. You believe you're a Christian. You're a Christian by faith. Guess what? You are a perfect obedient slave because of justification. You are in Christ, and Christ didn't mess up. He never missed the mark. And Christ is in you. That's what he sees. You are justified as never missing. 
So this concept that we can be more righteous by what we do, living some pious lifestyle, or I'm going to pray more, I'm going to, it's all nonsense. You can't be more righteous than you already are. You can't be, go beyond the fixed point of obedience. You have hit the mark by faith because you are subject to that law. You're subject to that grace. You are under obedience of faith. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying in 15 and 16 here. Let me give you just one quick cross-reference here. The concept that you can't do both, and this is going to play with us a little bit. Matthew 6, 24, let's turn there just real quick. Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, in this case, wealth. You cannot be obedient and disobedient at the same time. You cannot be in two places at the same simultaneous time. Now, you guys are all asking me in your own mind, wait a minute, <laughs> I sin every day. You just said I was perfectly obedient by faith. How can I be obedient by faith and not in my daily life? This is the concept Paul is getting ready to talk about. We have submitted ourselves by faith to Christ. Eternally we're taken care of. We're justified. It's all planned out. Heaven is for real. But in our daily practice of our life, we need to manifest that truth by faith, daily walking through sanctification resulting in righteousness. And he's going to declare that in just uh, a little bit more. You cannot be both. And I know it seems like you are, but the truth here we'll talk about in verse uh, 17, 18, you are not. Next scripture. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient to the heart and to, um, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That term, you became, is worth underlining in your Bible. You became is the Greek term. It's an external expression. Something happened to you, right? Tornadoes don't, I don't muster up tornadoes in myself. Tornadoes happen to me. They affect our outside. Does that make sense? Something else came and affected you. You became obedient to the heart uh, from that form of teaching, the, the word form there is the Greek word tulos. This is important. It literally means like impression or stamp. So what happened on the external part of me? I was stamped. I was sealed by God, as Nehemiah would say, right? I was, I was, I was put the seal of a royal kingdom upon me. And it, it, how did it happen? It happened in my heart. Something externally from me affected me on the inside. The best way I can think about this is when you see a romance movie, guys pretend they don't cry, y'all do. It's, I'm not partaking in the romance, but as a witness of it, it's affecting me in here. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? You didn't like eat the book and got indigestion or something. It was, an, it was, a, it was a form of teaching. It, is, it, it, it happened to you on the outside. How did we become obedient? Not by works, by faith. It's all the Lord, right? He did this to us by faith. We allowed this. We laid down of our will eternally, and by faith we were made the perfection of Christ. And we committed ourselves to it, as it says in verse 17. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Before, when you were a slave to sin, you could not disobey sin. So what would you do? You sinned. All you did was sin. You, you obeyed the lusts of the devil. You were a slave to the enemy. But by faith, resulting in this, chain, this, this effect that happened to your heart, you become slaves to righteousness. Now, there are two things happening in this set of Scripture at the same time. The first is justification, right? You're saved forevermore heaven. Okay, that's one thing. The second that we're talking about now is this daily life. So let me ask you a question. In your daily life, are you a slave to righteousness in that you can do nothing but righteous things? People in here are like, oh. you're waiting for the altar call. Like, I just need to get saved again. <laughs> Let's just make sure. <laughs> Don't worry, one time's good enough. Paul is explaining to this that though you may not experience this truth, it is in fact the truth. You are a slave 
to righteousness, which means upstanding, which means you can stand before the Lord with no spot or blemish. I can be confident before God. I am the right standing of him. Who is righteous before God? Only Jesus. Who is in us, and he is in, uh, we are in him, and he is in us. Chapter 5 talks about our old man is gone, our new man is here, right? How can you be a slave to sin if that thing's dead? You're no longer that. I deal with this sometimes when people are passing away, I deal with funerals in the pastorate. The relationship status changes for a widow instantly. Tons of things change about their relationship. And they try to hold on, they'll say, I'm still married. And I understand the concept, they still love that person that has passed, but the reality is they're not. That person is gone. They are not still there. Your status has forever changed. In Christ, your status has forever changed. You think you're a sinner, but that is not your nature anymore. Be encouraged, church. That's not who you are anymore. The Bible says so. I'm not trying to tell you so. That's what it says. Having been freed from sin, you have freedom because you have become slaves to righteousness. You served one master and disobeyed the other because you cannot obey them both. But when you disregarded one by faith, you became perfectly obedient by freedom from that other slave or that other master. Does that make sense? That's encouraging news that he's sharing. In verse 19, we got to hustle here. Um, by the way, the cross-reference for that is not uh, Romans 5. I, I misinterpreted that. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Um, Behold, the best things have gone, the new has come. The old man is dead. 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves, you were free in regard to righteousness. Paul says, I want to now talk about the question you're all wanting to ask. How can you tell me that I am perfectly obedient to righteousness and in sin every day? He says it like this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, essentially saying the next thing I'm about to talk about is resulting your human terms, your, your weakness in your flesh. You're saying, I believe all these things to be true, but I'm weak in my flesh. I sin every day. Everybody hears that. For just as you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He's saying the same thing you did then, do it now. You were, you, you were a sinner whether you wanted to be or not, because it wasn't about you. Right? It was just the devil was just preying upon you. And you felt like you were achieving your own lust, but in reality, you were just digging yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. The same thing is true here. He's essentially been saying you have been given the freedom to choose the right path on the crossroads of life. When before you were at the crossroads, the only thing you could choose is choose sinful street. All you, no matter what you did, sinful street. No matter where you went, sinful street. But now, because you've been freed from that responsibility, you have the option to choose nothing but the righteous road. Every time. In the same way you gave yourself to the lusts, even though you were trying to deny yourself or it wasn't good for you or whatever, you still sinned. In the same way, you can choose the righteous way. And I'm not talking about the righteous way in some like set out plan for your life. It's obedience to the Holy Spirit. It's learning the ways of God. It's understanding the word for yourself and being a mature Christian. That's why discipleship is important. That's why evangelism is so necessary. That's why growing up in Christ is essential. People say, I don't go to church. I just have a relationship with Christ. Impossible. We help each other. Help each other do what? Grow up into him who is the head. We become more like the righteousness of God by being around each other. You want to know how many times Veronica Arnold had to call me out? Something I had no idea was going on in my life? I'm thankful for the body of Christ because it helps me see the righteous road and reminds me that I can choose it every day. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free from that. You didn't have to obey it. You didn't, it wasn't there. But now that the old man is dead, you have the capability to do nothing but the righteous act of God every day. You can do it. You absolutely can, according to the word. Um, I, I just want to take this quick here because we got to hustle. Um, a, 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 a concept on the next slide here to help bring this all home. I've spent, I talked to my wife for 
like two hours last night on different ideas on how to make this a relatable, teachable moment. I hope the word speaks well enough all by itself, but I'm also praying that the Spirit would help this next uh, slide help you uh, if needed. I call this truth and reality. This is a, a principle that uh, an elder in our church named Jerry we've talked about over the years, and I think it's really applicable to this, to this set of scripture. Now, I've taught this before, and one of the concepts in the, in the teaching, or in the church today that I want to just debunk right here, it, it puts pressure on a pastor to constantly be coming up with the new thing. And no other entity on the planet, in school, being repeatable is a quality. Learning, I didn't learn my math tables like the first time the teacher taught it, and then she had to go on to the next thing. Thank the Lord that she didn't, because it took the brother a while. Being repeatable in this church, if you've heard this before, don't roll your eyes or turn off your ears, man. You need to listen up. Because having it heard to you again, I don't know about you, but I've had to have stuff repeated to me in this church a lot before I got the concept. The truth and reality principle is not only applicable to this scripture, uh, but to many others, and I think it's really helpful to this idea of, of justification and sanctification. And it goes something like this. The truth is, when you have given your life to the Lord, you are, you, the old man is gone, the new man has come, you are the righteousness of God, right? You can, you're a slave to righteousness, you obey him perfectly. But is that your reality? Uh-uh, I sin every day. We all say that. When Jesus came to the earth... Truth hit and met reality. What he said he did, right? He said he was the truth, and then the truth became this living, breathing thing that functioned in our world. Stand up, people stood up. Be healed, people got healed. All of this stuff happened, or he said it was going to happen, and then it did. He backed it up. Proof of his omniscient uh, uh, um, godliness. Anyway, truth became reality. The concept that Paul derives here that we are in Christ and that we put on Christ is that when we are in him and he is in us, when we are regenerated in Christ, right? We were baptized, we died with him in crucifixion, we resurrected with him on the third day in our spirit, that in fact now our truth can become our reality. People can be healed from being lame today. The blind can see today. The church can be revived and, 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 and change cities today. The very truth you read about that became reality in the Bible can happen today. Truth can meet reality. The truth about you is that you are the righteousness of God. Okay, You are sinless in every way. That's how he sees you and he only sees the truth. The truth is you don't have to say I sin every day. The truth is you can see and you can take and you can choose the righteous road to obey your master, Christ, every day in every decision. That's the truth. Whether that's your reality or not is irrelevant. That's what the Bible says. If you believe in it, you know, just take it. Concept here is can we make that our reality? We do that by faith and action. Pestio is the faith and obedience. It's moving in action. Your life in faith. Not for yourself. You're a slave. Giving up of your own uh, uh, well-being. Giving up of what you believe you want or what you desire in exchange for what he asks for is the Christian sanctified life. Sanctification is the expression of your truth. And you'll be sanctified every day over time by faith. Not by your works. Faith in the Lord may tell you to just sit still and you'll become sanctified. Does that make sense? Okay, let's bring the worship team up. Let's get ready for our offering here. One last slide. Um, this is an invitation to doulos. I want to invite you all to uh, accepting our relationship with God that we are in fact slaves. And that it's not a bad, poor thing on this Independence Day. You have freedom from sin. And in exchange, you offer your life willingly to the Lord to say, let me serve you all the days of my life. God is not looking for a group of great speakers. God is not looking for a group who has a ton of money. God is not looking for a group in a community that can do uh, amazing things with PowerPoints and laser shows and fog machines. God is looking for a people that stand up, raise their hand, and say, I'm a slave, whatever you want. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. They sit at the feet of Jesus, and when he moves, they move too. It is their pleasure to serve the Lord. Paul in his gospel is asking this Roman church to set their own life aside. You're Americans. You are free. 
you get the benefits of being a children of God. But do not forget for a moment that you are in fact slaves. And it is such a good thing to serve the Father. Even if it doesn't benefit us, even if it isn't good for us, even if it kills us, even if it's hard for us, we are here to serve Him. Amen. Amen. Let's take up our offering here and get ready for communion. Lord, we just thank you for uh, your word and its goodness. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the practice of the Christian faith and uh, the giving that's required or that you ask of us. Um, Lord, I pray that nobody here would give out of requirement or obligation, but they would give out of the freeness and willingness of their heart because uh, they are slaves to you. Lord, I pray that they would listen to your word. To Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to each person individually now and you would tell them what to give. Maybe it's everything, maybe it's nothing at all. And by obedience in righteousness, they would obey your word. Lord, I thank you for those that give. I pray that you return it back to them tenfold. I pray that you use this money, not for our benefit and any gain, but for yours alone. We pray these things and believe these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's go ahead and partake in our offering. While we're going through the offering, I want to share with you that uh, in the Christian, in my family especially, I'm an Italian. Italian families celebrate things with food. That's why I look the way I look. Come home, it's a reunion or something, everybody eats. Grandma just stuffs your face. We celebrate with a meal. Birthday meal, Christmas meal, Easter meal, when the Raiders win the Super Bowl, we have a meal. Everything's around a meal. In the Christian faith, we do the same. We celebrate our Lord and we remember him by partaking in a meal called communion. It's a way that we we identify not only with the Lord personally, but by what he did for this world. Communion is not for the non-believer. The Bible says that a curse can come upon you, can become sick if you receive of this meal and you do not believe. But for the believer, no special powers get transformed to you. It is a moment of reconnection with him, of solemn remembrance and celebration. It's, I didn't forget and I'm so thankful. Well, as we share this meal together, um, I hope that we do as not only an individual with the Lord, but as a community, we celebrate and we remember the Lord as he gave his body on the cross and he spilled his blood for any that might believe. That we would have a new master. That we would have eternity with him. That we would have a regeneration in Christ. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to uh, step aside here. When you're ready to receive communion, you go up and walk down the center aisles, get what you need to do, and, and come back, and then we will take it together in just a minute or two. Thanks a lot. The first verse of this song uh, says, If I rise, let me rise on you, not on all of my success, my esteem, or my pursuits. If I lose, let me lose my life. Because if I belong to Jesus, the flesh is crucified. Lord, we, uh, we take of this bread right now and we, we receive and we remember and we celebrate what you have done. Lord, that you considered yourself nothing at all, though you were the king of the world. As we eat this bread, we remember that the king of the world came down to the dust of the earth and he freely gave of himself. You gave up your life so that we might have life. What an amazing gift. As we eat of this cracker, we, we just remember and thank you for that time now. And as we drink, Lord, you said that you would give up this blood a new and everlasting covenant. It was a symbol of, of, of the commitment and the bond that you were making, of the promise you were declaring. That we said this morning we can find rest and trust in your love. Your love was demonstrated on the cross. It was poured out in abundance. And as we drink of this cup right now, we remember the promise that you've made. That you are not a God who can lie. That you're not a God who can forget. That you're not a God who can just fumble and let us go. That your word is clear. That you've made a covenant with those who believe by faith. And we, the believers, celebrate all that you've done for us.
Of course, Lord, we can't believe all these things and trust in all these things without what you did on the cross. And so we, we, we exalt you, Lord. We lift you up. We celebrate your name. Not only for what you did on the cross, but what you did three days later in your resurrection. You conquered death. You are the Lord of the universe. Encourage us, Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you correct the things that I've said that were misspoken today. I ask, God, that you uh, straighten out the areas where I was uh, too bent. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would fall upon each one of these people and teach and encourage and um, help every one of them individually because that's what you do. We thank you, Lord, and we believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this song one last time. Want to stand to your feet. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. One more time. For me. Christ, for me to live is Christ, for me to live is Christ, to die is I pray that the Lord would bless you in so many ways this week. I pray that gratitude would overflow in every one of your hearts, that you would remember not only are we free in this blessed country by the sovereignty of God, but we are free from sin according to the word. I pray that you would grasp that truth, that you would hold tightly to it, that you would understand it to be your own, and I pray that it would become your reality. For those that receive the truth and make it their everyday life, those are the ones who change the world. I pray that you find yourself looking up and smiling over this holiday. I pray that you find yourself giving outside of yourself as a slave, saying that you don't consider your life as your own. And I pray that you're blessed all along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week. Thanks so much for coming. When the boys light up, light up, I was feeling all overcome. Had a think I'm dim and then some. Got a call from a band of brothers. Turn the mic on, flash the Nikons. All the dollars I heard them say. Now the band's gonna fade away. But the boys are back for a second act. No excuses, we're lighting fuses. You're in the dawn of your finest hour. So get wired to the highest power. Pick it down, pick any sight. Get ready to ignite. Bye.